Welcome to episode 40 of the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast, Internal Softness, Martial Arts and Horses Aren't People with Mark Rashid. I am very excited to share with you today's episode because I interview one of my favorite horse authors of all time, Mark Rashid. Mark Rashid is an internationally known author and horseman known for his ability to understand the horse's point of view and solve difficult problems with communication rather than force. He began working with horses at age 10 when he met the old man who taught him to work with horses, not against them, and to listen to what the horse is trying to say. Mark's clinics are structured as one-on-one work with horse and rider and are immensely popular with people around the world. When Mark decided to study the martial art of Aikido as a way to improve his horsemanship, he brought the same quiet determination to it that he exhibits in his work with horses. Mark worked full-time on ranches for many years, gathering herds, managing stock, and training horses. When time permits, he still enjoys working on ranches near his home in Colorado, as well as playing guitar professionally with his friends. Mark is the author of 14 books with his latest titled For the Love of the Horse. At the time of releasing this episode, I have almost finished his latest book and I'm really enjoying it. And shout out to one of my lovely students, Meg Mortimer, who gifted me a signed copy of his book. So thank you, Meg. I'm very grateful for the book and loving it so far. And if you have access to my free books and resource list, you will see all of Mark's books listed there. You can get access to the free books and resource list as well as other freebies like the connection and communication mini course, the free writer specific exercises to improve your writing and my weekly horsemanship breakthrough emails at AmaliaDempsey.com. I really loved speaking with Mark. It felt like I don't know, I was a kid at Christmas and he was reading to me like story time in a way. It just was so great to hear his voice come alive, you know, reading all of his books and reading them all multiple times, just hearing his voice and hearing the stories spoken in his own words, in his own voice was just really amazing. And I'm, I'm just so happy to have had the opportunity to speak with Mark and to share it with all of you today. So enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast, a source for riding and training insights with the goal of helping your horse be a light, happy and willing partner. I'm your host, Amalia Dempsey, a mainstream equestrian rider who discovered natural horsemanship and equine learning theory. And now I help riders like you achieve connection and communication with your horse so you can have more fun and fulfillment whilst prioritizing the partnership. Get more learning resources, including my free connection and communication mini course at AmaliaDempsey.com. Click the follow button so you don't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave me a rating and review or screenshot this episode and share on social media. I hope you enjoy the show. It is an absolute honor today to welcome Mark Rashid to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast. Mark, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate the uh, the opportunity. As I said off air, I'm such a huge fan. I've read all of your books. So this is something to tick off my bucket list today, speaking with you. And I would love to start by hearing about your horsemanship journey to date from when you got into horses and what has led to where you are today. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, <laughs> Good question. That, yeah, there's uh, there's kind of a lot to that, I guess. Um 
but I'll I'll try to do a, a condensed version of it. Um, I I began kind of working with horses, well, actually cleaning up after them uh, when I was about ten years old. From uh, and was working with uh, there was a, a little horse place just down the road from where we lived at the time, and uh, there was an old uh, horseman there and. Uh, he kind of took me under his wing and I started to uh, literally, I just kind of cleaned up after the horses. I didn't know anything about horses at the time, but I always liked them. You know, I, I don't know why I did, but I, but I did. And so it was, it was, you know, pretty cool that, that this guy, did. and he just showed up one day, you know, we would take Sunday drives out uh, past this little rundown, um farm and one day we went past and it was it had a bunch of horses on it and so uh we you know i just rode my bike out there and would pet the horses over the fence and feed them feed them grass and <clears throat> and then as i got braver i would go in the in the the pasture with the horses and eventually he caught me in there and and basically just said, if you're going to feed them, you're going to clean up after them. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so that, so that's what kind of got me started. And um, he was pretty, you know, I didn't know anything about horses or how, how to work with horses or anything. So he was my only uh, reference point at the time. And, you know, he did everything so quiet and, you know, thoughtfully that uh, I just assumed that's how everybody worked with horses. And, you know, it was kind of a surprise as I grew older and and um, started working with horses kind of on my own later on, that that's not how everybody worked with horses. Mm. And uh, so basically kind of the long and short of it is that there was a certain feel to him and the way that he worked and really the place really um, that I thought I just figured that was how it was supposed to be. And so as I grew and started working with horses on my own, I wanted to find that feel again. And uh, it was, you know, I was mostly emulating what I had seen him do and how he did it, you know, and um, as I, you know, as I branched out on my own, but I just, you know, I was having a hard time feeling it, feeling mm -hmm. what was there uh, with him. And so, and he was gone by that time, you know, he had passed away. And so, you know, this is when I was kind of in my late teens, early twenties, kind of mid twenties kind of thing. And so I would, you know, I'd heard about different horsemen and one thing or another that sounded like what he was doing. And so I would go look and, you know, watch them and, and they would say one thing, but it, it, it didn't, you know, it just wasn't the same thing. You know, the words matched, but the, but the behavior didn't. And so, uh, and that went on for quite a while. And, uh, 
you know, and so I was just kind of muddling along on my own. I was working ranches and I was the horse guy. And so I was just working with horses. There wasn't anybody there to, to kind of look over my shoulder and, you know, help me. I was just the guy that was working with the horses and, and so everybody just kind of left me alone. You know, the owners of the ranch or whatever, just as long as I got the work done. Mm-hmm. And, um, but you know, one thing led to another and, um, my first book came out and uh, I was working a ranch at the time and uh, the ranch got bought out and they didn't uh, need me anymore. So they moved me. They basically let me go. And, and that was when I started to kind of do clinics and I've been doing them ever since the, the interesting thing though, about the feel part of it is that, I wasn't able to find what I was looking for until, and this is a, a whole other long story, but I, I ended up training in the martial art of Aikido. Mm-hmm. And it was there that I found what I was looking for as far as the feel of it, you know, the compassion. the, um, And I just was really lucky in that I was able to work with some of the top you know, um, masters really in the world and so gleaning from them and it was you know it was just yeah it was just the same it had the same feel and and the aikido itself has really made a huge difference for uh, the work that i do and and my teaching and and pretty much everything and even in my in my life in general so that's kind of it in a nutshell i would say Yes, and I'm sure if people want more details, they can read your books because you go into, you know, the whole stories of of your life with horses, which, yeah, amazing and so many lessons to be learned from your stories. And that's how I found out about you. What made you want to write books about horses? Uh, nothing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, it was, wasn't even on my radar. I had... Um, I was in between ranching jobs and I decided to, I was trying to find a way, you know, I I had a wife and three little kids and I was trying to find a way to make some money. And so I, I, I just, it was in the summer and I, I started a, a little horse training school that we use Mustangs for. And uh, in that school, there was one of the students who came to me one day and said that uh, her husband was going to sell his horse and could I come take a look at him and see how much he'd be worth and so I I went over and uh, you know you couldn't catch the horse so we spent a little time catching him and then once you got him caught he didn't lead very well so we worked on that a little bit and then once you got him leading he he uh, he didn't want to be groomed and saddled so we worked on that a little bit and once he was groomed and saddled, he didn't want you to get on. And so we spent a little time on that. And once he got on, he wouldn't go. And then once we got him going, he wouldn't stop. And uh, so, um, you know, but we worked on all those things. And by the time we were done, it was maybe an hour or two. And by the time we were done, I mean, he was a really nice horse, but he was just he just didn't know what was being asked of him. And so he was worried, you know, he was scared. And so once he understood what we were asking him to do, he was, he was a really, really nice horse. And 
and um, the you know the the woman's husband ended up keeping him, but he he was the guy who asked me if I wanted to write a book, and because he was an editor for the ultimately the publishing company that that did my my um, probably my first six books, mm-hmm. and he was my editor for the first for the first six books, but he was the one that asked me to to do it, and um, so that was kind of how that worked out. So it wasn't, it wasn't any, it wasn't my idea. <laughs> so Yeah, there you go. You know, meant to be. Yeah. So it, it, uh, it completely turned my life around actually. Yeah. Yeah. And before you were talking about this feeling um, with horses and also in Aikido, can you elaborate on that feeling? What do you think that feeling is and um, how do you get it? Well, how you get it is there's a bunch of different ways of getting it, uh, of achieving it or developing it. Uh, there, but what it what it really boils down to is um, is internal internal softness. Really, is what it boils down to. There's there's you know there's way more to it, but that's pretty much the bottom line. Uh, is that it's it's an internal softness that um that you take with you in everything that you do mm-hmm. and um so you know it's sort of in in my newest book i talk about it in more detail but there's it's sort of um like i would say to not to trivial out trivialize it but it it just it's more like uh it's sort of a humanity really i think that mm-hmm. um you know that we're all in it together, and um, and you know, there's why don't we try to get along with <laughs> with is it with horses, but with certainly with each other, and and in everything that we do. So that was the feel that I got back when I was a kid, and and that was that's the the feel that I. Uh, that I found in in my work in Aikido mm. martial arts, and it sounds like the old man was a huge influence in terms of helping you kind of discover that feeling with horses. Who who was the old man, and um, did you have any other mentors or people who influenced you with horses along the way? His name was Walter Pruitt, and. Um, he was just an old hand, you know, an old cowboy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, there's lots of them around. There's lots of those guys around. And um, over the years, I have run into to some of them. Uh, I had a really good friend who, who we bought a bunch of horses from over the years named Lloyd Alm. And he was, he just passed away a couple of years ago. And, and he was, I think, 86 when he passed away. And, um, but just an excellent horse breeder and, and hand with a horse and quiet, you know, just quiet and um, just a really super nice guy, you know, and, but he's not out there doing clinics. He's not out there, you know, trying to make a name for himself. He's just had a little, a little farm up there in Minnesota, which is way up in the North country um, here in the United States. And, and, um, you know, he raised some cattle and 
and raise good horses. And that was his life, you know? So those guys are around that you just, you know, you don't, you don't see them. You don't, you know, they're not, they're not out there making a name for themselves, you know? Mm. So um, as far as, you know, sort of mentors in the horse world, I don't have a lot of them because I spend so much time focusing on what I'm doing um, and what I'm trying to improve myself and, and kind of what I'm, what I'm doing and what I'm learning. So I don't, I mean, uh, most of the people that I spend time with are either in the world of martial arts or, um, you know, and they might be in the horse world, but not necessarily trainers. I spent uh, uh, quite a bit of time with uh, Dr. Steve Peters, who is a equine neurologist and um, learning about how the horse's brain works and uh, understanding that better. And so that, uh, you know, cause you really, you're working with the brain, the horse's brain more than you are the horse's body. And so um, mm. understanding that has been real critical for me over the years. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of, that's kind of where I'm at with, with all of that right now. Yeah, cool. And did I read somewhere that I think maybe in your new book, you touch a little bit on your learnings from Dr. Peters? Is that, is that right? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, cool. In fact, I think I spend um, a, ch- uh, a whole chapter or maybe, you know, a chapter and a half on, on different things from him. He actually wrote the foreword uh, for the new book. So, Amazing. yeah. Yeah. That was a big turning point for me, you know, meeting him. And um, he had read, read something in one of my books where I was talking about the fact that horses are unable to understand the concept of respect. Mm-hmm. They don't have the part of the brain, the part of the brain that, you know, we have that part of the brain, the, the, the neocortex, and mm-hmm. the horses don't really have that. And... So they can't understand any kind of abstract concepts and, you know, the understanding the idea of respect or disrespect or good or bad or right or wrong. They don't have the part of the brain that allows for the understanding of those concepts. So I put that in, in one of my books mm-hmm. and he just wrote to me out of the blue and said that I was right on the money with, um, with what I had said. And we, eventually got together and have become really good friends over the years. Amazing. And I do remember reading that part in one of your books about respect um, because it was something that I had been taught personally with horses. And then when I, that completely changed my view when I read that passage in the book that was about it not being about respect, but it being about understanding and the horse not understanding what it is that you're asking, not that they don't respect you could you elaborate a little bit on that topic for our listeners like you know what if someone if someone is listening thinking oh but my horse doesn't respect me what would you sort of say to them uh they they can't uh, they can't disrespect you they they don't have that's not how they think that's not how their brain works you know they they if a horse isn't isn't doing something that you want them to do. It's because they don't understand what it is you want. 
So the information that we're trying to present somehow isn't getting through. And um, a big part of that, oftentimes, one of the reasons that horses fail to understand what we're trying to present is we we're pretty presenting it in a way that worries them and or if they don't understand it and then we put more pressure on them you know you can imagine if you were in school and you didn't know the answer and then the teacher starts yelling at you because you don't have the answer and that and so you just keep shouting out answers that aren't even close to what you know the teacher is looking for and then the teacher ends up hitting you for it. And that happens all the time in the horse world. So a lot of it ends up, a lot of horse behavior ends up being fear-based just simply out of, because of misunderstandings, which is unfortunate. And it's, and it's really easy to fix. If we, we just, you know, if we just take take our you know big huge human brain and use it <laughs> to to reason our way out of those situations and and just stop and think about if my horse isn't doing this they don't understand it and they don't feel safe and if they don't feel safe they're going to get on the defensive they're going to want to they're going to want to be they would not want to be but they will be defensive and that's the kind of behavior that people uh, mistake as you know the horse being aggressive or the horse being you know disrespectful or the horse being bad or you know any number of other things and horses just don't they don't know how to be bad they don't that's not how their brain works they they don't understand the concept of good or bad you know they're a horse's behavior has no value to it whatsoever to the horse it's just behavior the only time that a horse's behavior has a value is when we put a value on it. But to the horse, it's just behavior. It's just, they're just offering information in relation to what is being presented to them. Yes, exactly. And I, I love how you reframe it, well, kind of debunk the myth of respect in horses and talk about the understanding because I think it just helps the human view things from a more compassionate lens rather than, you know, hands on hips kind of, hey, he doesn't respect me. It's like that's kind of not a helpful belief anyway, um, whereas when you think, oh, he's not understanding, you, you're you viewing things from a more um, compassionate lens and better able to problem solve from that perspective. Does that make sense? It does. And the thing about it, I think, it gives when people start talking about a horse disrespecting you, it sort of gives them um, permission to, to be rough with yeah. the horse. Yeah. To, it gives the person, you know, because then it's the horse's fault. It's not, you know, when the, the thing, here's the thing, right? So most of the stuff, well, all of the things that horses do when they're in relate, when, when they're, with humans, all of the behavior has been taught to them by a human. Mm -hmm. So all of their behavior. So uh, anything that they do when they're around humans has been taught to them by somebody. So if we use, let's let's just say that that we want. I'm just I'm throwing this out just yeah. as an example, but so we want the horse to. Um, stay out of our 
personal space. Mm -hmm. And so every time we, you know, the horse, you know, we create a boundary. Every time the horse comes close to the boundary, we explain to them that that's, that's as far as we want them to go. And pretty quick, they will learn that. They'll learn where the boundary is. It's, it's pretty cool how quickly they will learn that. Now, if so we taught them that, right? So we, we were paying attention. We had set a clear boundary. We had reinforced the boundary. The horse learned the thing we wanted him to know. Mm-hmm. And that was that, right? So that's us being, we might look at ourselves then and say, okay, I'm a good trainer, right? So then let's say that somebody isn't paying attention and the horse I'm talking to my friend or whatever, and my horse is behind me and, and comes up, you know, comes inside my personal space. I don't have a boundary at the, I haven't even established a boundary with my horse. So there's no reason why they shouldn't come up to me. So they do. And then maybe while they're, they've come into my space, they come closer and eventually they come and they, maybe bump me, maybe it's even even by accident, but they they bump me with their nose. And and I move because I'm not paying attention and I'm talking to my friend. Mm-hmm. It's like a little, somebody might say a little kind of a little nut, love nudge or something, you know, where they just, horse just kind of gives you a little bump. Mm-hmm. And the horse is learning this whole time. The horse is seeing that we are okay. We don't have any boundaries. It's okay for them to come up to us. It's now it's okay for them, for them to bump us with their nose. And if I bump a little bit more, that person moved. So I can actually move that person mm. if I bump them. And, bef- and just like that, that horse is, is doing behavior that we don't want, mm-hmm. but we, we taught it to them <laughs> by not paying any attention to what was going on. We taught it to him inadvertently, right? Well, we taught it to him. But what we're going to do is we're going to blame the horse. We're going to say that that horse is being disrespectful, right? (laughs) So when I meant to teach them something and they learned it, then I'm a good trainer. When I inadvertently teach them something and they learn it, it's a bad horse. And you can't have it both ways. No. No, we've got to take responsibility for everything that they learn, whether it's what we see as good or bad. Um, And I think that's kind of good for people to reflect on, like if they're struggling with a particular unwanted behaviour with their horse, perhaps think to yourself, okay, how could I have contributed to this? How did I actually teach my horse to do this? And that might give them some clues as to how to help kind of overcome that problem. Well, yes, and... I kind of look at it a little differently there mm-hmm. in that I would knowing where it came from is really important, but what's more important is dealing with it in real time. Yes. Dealing with the behavior in real time. Cause that's what the horse is doing. The, the behavior is coming out of the horse in real time and we need to be dealing with it in real time. How it got there isn't as important as how I deal with it now. And that's, you know, because we, we have a tendency as, as humans, as we do, we have a tendency to want to, to want to place blame and fault, you know, <clears throat> and 
okay, if I figure out how I did that, and, and really all you do have to do is reverse engineer the, the behavior to, to what I've been doing. And before long, you're going to figure out what happened and how it got there. But, but really, you, it, what I have found is that the most beneficial thing is just <clears throat> how this behavior got here, unless it's a physical thing or something like that, you know, the, where we really need to know that this is a physical issue. Um, if we're just talking behavior, if we are only talking behavior, then it's just something that we need to deal with in real time in a way that the horse understands. And if we can do that, it's so much easier for the horse to think their way through it and figure out how to do the thing that we want instead. So that, that idea of, you know, sort of placing blame and fault, I think it doesn't do us any good. You know, I, I, I mean, it's good to know that stuff, I guess, good to know where it came from, but, but, you know, so often, you know, we, people get stuck in the fact that they'll say, well, I didn't want to do anything wrong. So I didn't do anything. Well, that's almost as bad as, as doing something that you didn't, you know, um, it's, you know, just trying things. If you're trying them with the right mindset, then, you know, even if you're just struggling and, but if you're, if you're, if you're trying things with the mindset that my horse doesn't understand what I'm asking them to do. And then just working your way through it in a mindful and thoughtful way, chances are you're going to make some headway. You know, it may take a while, but you're going to, you know, things are going to go in the direction you want, you know, sooner rather than later, probably. Yeah. Love that you mentioned that. Um, and it's it's good that you also mentioned the physical side of things. What what are some clues for people um, if they're wondering whether their horse has a physical issue or or a behavioral issue? What do you think can help them work out whether it's A or B? Well, the first thing I do anytime I see a behavioral issue is I I just make an assumption that it's probably physical. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm a trained. Uh, body worker as well, equine body worker, mm -hmm. um, and, as is my wife, and she's a certified um, body Masterson method body worker. And um, but I've been um, for over thirty years. I've been um, looking at the physical side of things with horses because more times than not, there is a physical element to to what's going on. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, ways to figure it out if people are riding, for instance, um, if a horse has trouble going downhill, uh, usually that. So if you're riding and the horse kind of tries to traverse the hill or they rush down the hill or rush up a hill or if they um, if they can't seem to hold themselves up with their back end as they're going downhill. Mm -hmm. Those are all telltale signs that you've got something going on in the horse's back end or maybe lower back, hocks maybe. Um, if a horse is having trouble with one lead, then, or, you know, he, they can pick up one lead but not the other. That's almost always a physical thing, especially if it's really consistent. Um, and, you know, so that, so that can be a problem either in the shoulder 
or it can be a problem in the in the back end on the on the opposite side of the lead. Um, not being able to back up that can be a sign that there's something in the pole, um, something in the withers, something in the lower back, um, as well as other places, of course. Uh, mm -hmm. Not being able to turn one direction or the other. Um, you know, they can turn really nicely in one direction, but not be able to turn very well in the other direction. You know, that's, people will say, well, my horse doesn't bend to the left or doesn't bend to the right. And you can see that they're, you know, the horse is stuck. And, and so, you know, physical, lots of physical things, lots of things to look for. Um, you know, and teeth, you know, teeth is, uh, can be a big factor in, um, and how the horse is um, able to respond to things and how their body, if the, if the horse's teeth are out of balance, then the whole horse will be out of balance. And that creates all kinds of problems, mm. you know? And, and uh, so, you know, finding somebody that can, that can balance teeth and in a way that promotes, you know, neuromuscular, um, health mm -hmm. is is the key you know it's good i mean we've heard you know that if you don't you know no foot no horse well no teeth no horse so yeah so it's really important to have you know uh, i'm just i'm not a big proponent of you know power floating horses uh, because that does um it can do a tremendous amount of damage and doesn't help uh doesn't help the horse really at all. In fact, it can do a lot of damage to the horse in, in a very short period of time. And a lot of times with power floating, uh, it's been our experience that that problems won't show up right away. They show up about six months later after the power floating has been done. And so, so you, you it's like you can't really um, see the connection between the two, but but there is a connection. And it's pretty... It's almost like clockwork um, it, when they've been uh, overfloated, especially with power tools. Mm -hmm. Then about six months later, you're going to start seeing behavioral problems. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. I haven't heard of that before. Yeah. It's uh, again, you know, we've um, a good friend of mine is uh, is the founder of natural balance dentistry. I met him almost 20 years ago now. and um, We've had all our horses, uh, teeth balanced that way and then the the difference in how our horses are able to move and the way that they are able to um, you know if we do a for instance a chiropractic adjustment they're able to maintain that adjustment um, much much longer we had a horse that was 22 um, ended up having to put him down last year due to um, EPM but um, the people that anybody who ever worked on him, any body workers always called him, uh, a Gumby horse. I don't know if you guys know who Gumby is, but, but very flexible and very movable. And, um, they, we had his, um, Hawks x-rayed and at 22, they, the, the vet said that he looked like he was five. Wow. So that's, that's how beneficial having proper dental care can be to, to a horse long-term. Oh my goodness. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. 
Now, in your books, there are many stories that outline learnings and breakthroughs that you've had with horses along your journey. But out of all of your experience, what has been your biggest horsemanship breakthrough to date? Um, really, it's been the, um, the biggest breakthroughs have been have come from my work in, in the martial arts, mm-hmm. the biggest breakthroughs with horses. So there's things that we're doing now with horses because of my work in in martial arts that I couldn't have even imagined even five years ago. Um, you know, the difference in in energy, the difference in feel, um, how easy it is to develop um, to allow the horse to connect to us and how easy it is to for us to create openings and how easy it is for the horse to find those openings to do the thing that we want uh it's just been that has been really the single most important thing i mean really the breakthroughs personally for me with horses as well as it just in life in general have all come from from my martial arts training Mm. Would you recommend that people get involved in something like martial arts to help their horsemanship or is there another avenue they can go down or do they not need to do something like that? What are your thoughts on that? Well, um, I've been, I've, I've actually trained in a number of different arts and the one that's been the most uh, productive for me is, is Aikido. And, and of course it helps to have really good teachers as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's because, you know, there's a, a bunch of different reasons, but it's, uh, you know, Aikido is a defensive art, martial art. And so there aren't any offensive moves and, you know, kind of one of the main things in, in the art is to enter in to a conflict, blend with it, and then direct it to the most peaceful solution possible. So, you know, using that as sort of a guiding force uh, idea, then uh, it's it sort of shapes everything that you do. And um, one of the really cool things about Aikido is that in every move, in every technique, at some point in the technique, you and your partner, the person who attacked you, uh, are facing the same direction. You're facing the direction that the, so if somebody comes to attack and we do a technique, they were facing me, for instance, when they attacked. At some point during that technique, my partner and I will be facing that same direction. Mm-hmm. And the reason the reason for that is to so that we can literally see things from our par- our partner's perspective. Hmm. Wow. So, and another part of Aikido is to make sure that you don't hurt anybody. So not only are the techniques designed, I mean, they're, they're, uh, they're extremely effective. Um, uh, and it's a martial art, you know, it's not, it's not to be taken lightly. And, but the, one of the, the main uh, parts of it is to make sure that you don't hurt your opponent. So even if somebody comes at you with a knife, 
the idea is to, to maybe disarm them and put them in a position where they can rethink their life choices without hurting them. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So all of those things, I mean, there's, there's way more to it. I mean, is that something that I would recommend everybody do? You know, it's not for everybody mm. and it made a big difference for me, but I was looking for something specific and I found that in that particular art, not all arts are the same, not all martial arts and, um, and not all teachers are the same. So yeah. would I recommend everybody doing it? Probably not. You know, you can, you can, Tai Chi is another art that is, um, that you can kind of get some of the same ideas from, mm -hmm. uh, but also ballroom dancing, you know, yes. something weird, you know, you're taking direction from a partner or you're directing a partner, that kind of thing. So yeah, there's, you just, you know, just kind of need to look around a little bit and see if there's something that works for the individual, you know? Yeah. The reason I asked that Mark is I'm a bit of an overachiever. And when I read um, your book, I can't remember exactly which one it is that outlines a lot of the similarities between horsemanship and Aikido. Um, I found myself going, right, I've got to sign up to Aikido lessons. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's interesting you mentioned the ballroom dancing because I did a little bit of that with my dad actually. And you do learn, I, I did make a lot of correlations between riding horses and ballroom dancing because, yeah, even just feeling the the feeling that the instructor would give me when I would dance with him versus my dad, no offense, dad, but we were both beginners. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was a completely different feeling. And, um, you know, sometimes it was even a more firm feeling, but it was, it, it gave me a really, a real confidence. And suddenly I could dance really well when I was with the instructor. So yeah, it was, I really enjoyed it actually. And I think um, any of those practices, Tai Chi, ballroom dancing, Aikido, yoga even, I think we can make those correlations. And it's kind of like cross-training for for humans in terms of it helping our horsemanship and also our, our lives in general. Yeah, and I would agree, I would agree with that. Uh, I would agree with that. You know, I, for me, I, it was just really difficult for me to find what I was looking for in the horse world. I just couldn't. It didn't mean it wasn't out there. I just couldn't find it. Yeah. But um, but once I began my training in martial arts, which I've been doing now for almost thirty years, um, and and continue to to train and teach um, that as well, and and uh, so it's been uh, it's really been transformational for me. And and you know we teach now uh, I Ibada, which is basically it's um it's a martial art that we uh, developed um kind of an offshoot of aikido specifically for horse people and uh oh awesome yeah and it's amazing how quickly with people with no martial arts um experience whatsoever are able to pick up on the concepts and the techniques how quickly they are and then to be able to go out you know, we might, we have our classes usually in the morning and then in the afternoon they can go out and they can apply them to their horses immediately. Yeah. So, wow. yeah, it's, it's, um, um, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, cause I think it's universal really. I mean, it's, you know, we're all looking for the same thing, whether it's in our life or whether it's with horses, we're all looking for that sort of harmonious uh, interaction rather than, you know, fighting and arguing all the time. Yeah. 
Yes, exactly. There there are so many wonderful moments that you've detailed in your books, but could you tell us what has been your happiest horse memory? Oh, man. (laughs) They're all pretty much, they're all pretty much that. I mean, um, you know, there was, there's been so many, there's one in particular, I'll just uh, quickly, I don't, I I don't know if this is in one of the books or not. It may be, Mm -hmm. but uh, I was doing a clinic and, and this was up in Washington state and the the clinic host came to me and said, you know, there there's there, there's one horse that isn't here. They're going to be bringing him in at the end of the day, um, so he'll be your last rider. So okay, so I did the work through the day, and and um, this place was way out in the country and on a dirt road, and and the as I'm finishing up with the, well, not really finishing up. I guess it was two horses to the end. Or three and and I hear this racket and and uh, it, it was a trailer, you know, with a horse in it. And this horse was tearing this trailer up. I mean, banging and crashing, and it was a horrendous uh, noise. And this horse was really, really, really struggling. And it turns out he was my last horse. This is the last horse of the day. Mm-hmm. It was a stallion, a, an Arab stallion. And they uh, they left him in the trailer until it was his time to come out. And then they 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 brought him out. And I mean, he was his feet barely touched the ground and screaming and hollering and throwing himself around. And and uh, they they brought him to the round pen. You know, the, the people that were there to watch and they parted like the Red Sea when he came through. And mm. and they, he so they brought him into the round pen and the guy told us that he had tried to ride the stallion a few times and it never went well at all. And he, uh, he went into the round pen with him and, and, and basically he was pretty, I mean, pretty defensive. Both of them were. And, but the guy was really, I was sitting up on the round pen fence, just watching him. But it was interesting because the horse never really offered to, you know, wasn't aggressive. You know, he was, he was trying to, you know, to kind of defend himself, but he wasn't aggressive. He wasn't going towards the person. And, and so I asked if I could go in with him and the guy jumped out of the round pen and let me go in with him. Mm -hmm. And so I went into the middle of the pen. I had a halter over my arm um, in the crook of my arm and the horse was screaming and yelling and and throwing its head and kicking in my direction and you know flinging his head and you know towards me and and he would run and and I, really all I was doing was standing there I hadn't done a thing other than just stand there and he turned off the rail and charged right at me mm-hmm. and I thought well you know I'm going to have to make a decision here do I get the the halter rope off my arm and defend myself or do I see what he's going to do? And he hadn't done anything up to that point that showed me that he was aggressive. You know, he just seemed like he didn't know what to do. And, and he came straight at me and right at the last minute, he veered off and missed me. 
-hmm. and went back to the rail and ran the other direction. And he did that two or three times. And uh, I didn't really do anything. And, and uh, after, after probably, I don't know, maybe five minutes of that, maybe a little more, he turned and came off the rail and charged right towards me and stopped right in front of me and then put his head on my chest. Wow. And, um, and we started, didn't really do much with him that day, but the next day it was a four day clinic. And then the next day spent a little time with him by the fourth day. Well, the third day, the, the owner was riding him in the round pen there and getting along pretty well. And then on the fourth day they were riding and he started, you know, the, the thing about it is you couldn't really tell if he had any physical issues because he was so tight, this horse, and he was so uncomfortable. Mm. But by the fourth day, you could see, you know, he had loosened up and things, but you could see that he physically wasn't okay. There yeah. was something physical that was bothering him. And so the guy had ridden him maybe for 15 or 20 minutes and things had gone really well. But you could see that this horse was kind of getting to the point where he was going, I don't know that I can do this anymore. Mm. And because this hurts. And, and so I said, well, why don't, let's get, let's go ahead and get off and he can be done. And, you know, maybe we can find somebody, a chiropractor, somebody to take a look at him. Cause I think he's got some physical stuff going on. And the guy said, okay, but I don't want to get off him. He was right. I was sitting up on the round pen there and he rode past the gate, which I was sitting next to. He said, well, I don't want to stop him here at the gate. I'm just going to ride to the other side of the round pen and get off him there. And, and I thought, boy, that might be pushing him. I mean, even, even though it was just a, you know, like a 50 or 60 foot round pen, mm -hmm. I thought that may be, that may be more than he can do. Mm -hmm. And he got over to the other side of the round pen and you could see this horse, he could, and he was getting ready to get off. And this horse started to, you know, sort of dance in place and you could see his pinning in his ears and his nose was flared and mm -hmm. he was, really anxious and worried and troubled, you know, mm -hmm. and, and he said, the guy said, well, what should I do? I said, and well, he hadn't done anything yet, you know, to this point. And I, he was uncomfortable and I thought, well, let's just don't do anything. Just sit there and see what, see what he does. And so he, he did, he just sat there and the horse started to kind of escalate. And then just, like somebody flipped a switch, he stopped everything he was doing. His ears kind of came up and then he just laid down and the guy stepped off of him and the horse got back up and stood there with him. All the anxiety and everything else was gone. And it was like, you know, he could have done something pretty dramatic there. And he chose instead to help the rider get off. Wow. Instead of making, you know, doing, I mean, to, it was, it was an incredible thing that I had never seen before. That horse made a conscious decision not 
to escalate that beyond what he had already done. And he brought it to a peaceful solution of, you know, it was just, it was incredible. And, uh, you know, so that, you know, there's been a bunch of stuff like that, you know, but that was the first time and the last time that I saw anything that dramatic. Yeah. Wow. I feel like that highlights the fact that horses, they really, they don't want to fight with us. You know, they're, they're wanting to figure us out and they want peace. They, they really don't want to have a fight with us. Um, I guess sometimes they're probably forced to show some type of aggressive behavior to try and get their point across. But yeah, that was a really cool story demonstrating that, um, yeah, the fact that they don't want to fight. Well, they're not designed to, I mean, they're designed to fight if they, if they don't have any other choice, but they are, horses are not designed to, to create, to expend that kind of energy. You know, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of this stuff, you know, in the, in the training world where the, where there's, you know, the idea kind of, of, you know, that we have to be, we have to emulate the, the sort of the alpha horses behavior. And first of all, it's not really, you know, it's not true that mm-hmm. the horses, you know, I've, I've, I've been really lucky in that I've, I've been able to be around wild horses all over the United States, true wild horses that are out in the wild, feral horses. But I've also seen wild horses over in Europe and in England and on the moors in in England and uh, uh, in the new forest over in England. And all of them are the same. And they, they don't cause a ruckus. They don't chase each other around. They don't you know, move each other out of the way. They just don't do that. You know, they, because, uh, um, you know, in the wild, the, the, the strongest motivator in the wild is procreation. So they, it isn't about food in the wild. It's not about water in the wild, you know, because resources usually in the wild are plentiful. So they don't fight over resources. Mm. So there's no need to do that. And so you don't see, that kind of behavior. But when we domesticate them, what happens is we, we put them in a pen and then, you know, resources are limited. And so what you start seeing is a, a false um, herd dynamic where horses are pushing each other off the feed and that kind of thing. And that's what, that is not a true herd dynamic. That's a false herd dynamic that has been um, developed due to the, you know the the situation that the horse is in but in the wild that doesn't exist you never see that kind of behavior in the wild you know you might see it during breeding season to some extent but and then usually it's just the stallions and but you won't see it in the wild and but that's what people in certain you know training ideas are that we have to that's how we have to be around horses that we have to be the one that pushes the horse off the feet or whatever and it's just not true. So, and horses are not designed for that. They're not designed for those, that kind of behavior. They, the more they move around, you know, during the day, the more they're drawing predators in, you know, movement draws predators. So, you know, they're designed to be pretty dang quiet. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. 
Listeners of this podcast are usually wanting to do the best by their horses. And so one of the questions I like to ask guests is, what do you think makes a happy horse? Safety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and how do you think our owners can provide that for our horses? Well, it depends on the situation, but if there are two questions, we can we can assume that horses are always asking us two questions. Mm-hmm. First one is, am I safe? And the second one is, what are we doing? Yeah. And if we cannot answer the first question in the affirmative, the second question doesn't matter. Mm. Safety is the key. If they don't feel safe, they aren't going to be, well, there's no way they can be happy. That, yeah. I mean, we can't either if we don't feel yeah. safe. Yeah. So it's it's about making sure that your horse feels safe. And how you do that, when you do that, I mean, and, and there's as many answers to those questions as there are horses and people, but yes, but that's the key. That's the key. I mean, that's the key to training. That's the key to getting along with your horse. That's the key to having your horse be okay out on the trail or working with cattle or um, working a dressage test or going over a jump or you mm-hmm. name it. If they feel safe, they'll do it and they'll do it happily. If they don't feel safe, they might do it, but they aren't going to be happy about it. Mm. Yes. Very wise words. Now this next question, some people have actually said your name in response to it. And because you haven't had the questions in advance, you, I might be putting you on the spot here, but if you could have dinner with any three horse people dead or alive, who would it be? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I would, I would like to, well, probably the first one would be, uh, Walter. Yes. Um, I'd like to see him again. Mm-hmm. Um, then probably Tom Dorrance. Mm-hmm. I never met him. Uh, Tom Dorrance. And who else? Those are the two that come to mind right off the bat. I can't think of a third right off hand. Mm. I thought you would mention Walter, the old man, um, and I, I distinctly remember having to pull over in my car listening to the, one of your books, um, audio version, where I think it was the last time you saw the old man and I was bawling my eyes out. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, I had to pull over and clean myself up. Um, but, yeah, it was quite emotional because I think throughout all the books you're connection with him and the influence he had on you was just so evident. And I think I can't remember where it was or which book it was where, because you referenced him as the old man for so long. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the books you did mention his name and and something along the lines of people thinking he was Tom Dorrance or Ray Hunt or one of those guys. Um, is that a question you get asked a lot? Like who, who was the old man? Well, it is. And, 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 
the book that just came out, I talk, I use his name the whole time. Okay, good. <laughs> and um, the reason I didn't, I actually mentioned his name. I think I mentioned it in every book, mm -hmm. but people seem to gloss over it. Um, but the reason uh, you won't see in any of my books, you won't see a description of him anywhere other than, you know, his propensity to smoke cigarettes mm -hmm. and the truck that he drove and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But I purposely didn't, I purposely didn't put a description in of how he looked mm -hmm. because I wanted people to conjure up a picture of their own picture of him. Mm -hmm. Of You know, maybe it was somebody he reminded them of somebody they knew when they grew up or, you know, their father or their whoever, you know, grandfather. Mm -hmm. And so I did that on purpose and I did the same. It's why I, I stuck with calling him the old man for so long mm -hmm. because, you know, I, I kind of wanted him to, to have that effect on people. Yeah. And, uh, and in the, the latest book, um, I thought it was time to move past that mm -hmm. and give him his due. And, um, you know, and I thought that was important for uh, in this in this last in this last book. So um, and there's in the last chapter of the last book, there is a really pretty cool story about him. Um, that I hope people will really enjoy it. And that's all I'm going to say about it. But. Yes, that's a teaser. I'm so excited to read your new book. Um, has it been released yet uh, in America? I don't think it's available here yet in Australia. Can you tell us when we can get our hands on it? Uh, yeah, it has been released here. It's, mm -hmm. been, it's been out for about a, not quite a month, maybe three weeks, three or four weeks here. Um, I got an email from our publisher that said that there is a distributor in Australia that will be um, that will be distributing them soon. Yeah, I think where so I read be, they will be available in Australia. Yes, I think I did. I did a little bit of um, research. I think the book depository in Australia is releasing it on the fourteenth of October for our listeners. Oh. Yeah, oh. <laughs> but I wasn't sure if you had another date, so. <laughs> Um, no, I didn't. I, you knew more than I did. <laughs> now, many other guests of the podcast have mentioned your books as books that they would recommend that others read, including myself. But do you have any favorite horse books or resources um, that you'd like to recommend that aren't your own? You know, again, I don't. Um, I don't read a lot of horse books. I didn't. I haven't ever read a lot of horse books. Yeah. Um, but there are a couple of books. Anything by George Leonard, I would recommend. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, a book that he wrote called Mastery. <clears throat> That's a really good book. Um, he also wrote a book called The Way of Aikido. That's, uh, that's really good. And um, but those, those two books... I would say those two books, uh, I would recommend those two. There's there's several other uh, Aikido books, but I don't want to overwhelm people. 
with that, with all that. But um, but I those I would because they it's not just about Aikido. It's about um, you know there's also a book called um, uh, a lion lion tracker's guide to life. That's a really good book. Oh wow. Um, yeah. So I mean I I I don't really read a lot of horse books. I read I read books about you know people who have had experiences outside of the horse world and then and then i like to figure out how that works how that uh you know how it dovetails into the the work with horses Mm -hmm. yeah and and, and the reason i don't ride read a lot of horse books i think is because oftentimes um it just feels a little bit like um reinventing the wheel yeah and um you know and and when folks are focusing on technique that's kind of where you're at you know and so i'm looking for principle-based ideas Mm. because um like with aikido for instance and um you know it's a principle-based art and those principles can be applied to almost anything. And so um, the way that I look at it is when we're, t- when we're talking about principles, working off of principles, those principles can be applied to any technique, any discipline, any, anything that you're doing. So, so that's kind of why I go in that direction rather than reading horse books. Mm. Yeah. Makes sense. I think a few people actually have mentioned the whole interconnectedness of self-development um, and life and uh, or self-development and horses and also using principles rather than techniques um, in their horsemanship. So, yeah, really cool. Now, before we wrap up today's interview, what is the one message you would like our listeners to take from today's interview? Um, horses aren't people Mm. so we can't treat them like they are and we we have to we have to understand that they're horses and they're and they see the world differently than we do and if we can figure that part of it out you know whether you're just somebody who keeps your horse in the backyard or whether you're a professional or you know whatever Mm -hmm. but Horses aren't people. They don't think like we do. They, you know, they're, they're working off a whole completely different set of rules Mm. than we are. And it's, you know, it's our responsibility to figure that out. It's not their responsibility to figure us out. Uh, It's going to be very difficult for them to do because they don't, they don't have the big honking human brain that we do. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, if we can just treat horses like horses, you know, we're going to get along better with them, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. Love that message. And where can our listeners find out more about you and what you offer and purchase your books, et cetera? Uh, the, our website, I suppose, it's markrashid.com. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, that's that's really about it. Uh, you know, we don't have a lot of um, information out there other than what's on our website. Mm-hmm. 
uh, but the books are on there. There's, I guess, I, I don't know. I haven't looked at it in a long time. <laughs> Luckily we have somebody who takes care of that stuff for us, but um, I, you know, there's some information uh, on there of, about Ibato, the, the classes we, we teach this uh, for horse people. Mm-hmm. And um, there's information there about that. Um, I think there's information there on the books and um, and our schedule is on there and, and some other things. So, but that's, that's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. Yep. And I can also let people know that all of your books are available on Amazon and some of your books are also available in audio version on Audible too. So they can jump on over there to purchase those. Mark, it has been an absolute honor to have you on the show today. I'm sure all of our listeners got something out of it. And if they haven't already, they'll be um, wanting to read all of your books and especially your new book, which comes out in Australia soon and is already out in other countries. So thank you again for coming onto the podcast today and sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks for listening to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast. Make sure you hit the follow button so you get notified every time a new episode is released. And if you've learned even just one small thing from today's show, I would really appreciate if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or screenshot this episode and share it on social media. You can connect with me on Instagram at Amalia underscore horses or my website AmaliaDempsey.com where you can find free resources to help you on your horsemanship journey. That's all for today. Thanks for being here. Remember to train with kindness and ride with excellence and I'll see you in the next episode.